We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. We've got a special one for you this evening. Uh, normally, for those of you who are not familiar with the podcast, normally we're a little panel discussion where we talk about news and politics, sex and religion, what's going on in the world. Sometimes we have special guests. Uh, on this occasion, I've got two special guests who are going to be conducting a debate. Uh, the debate topic will be, does the Abrahamic God exist? And uh, we've got two speakers who are going to debate this topic. First of all, allow me to welcome to the podcast, Matthew Sue. Welcome, Matthew, for uh, agreeing to come on board. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Good on you. I'll give your credentials shortly. And also, of course, uh, somebody who's been with us on several occasions before, this time not allowed to speak about Venezuela in any format (laughs) whatsoever. Hugh Harris, welcome aboard again. Okay, I'll just delete that section out of my presentation and go from there. Thank you. Good Good on you, Hugh. Thanks for coming on board. So, dear listener, um, as you know, this is a podcast where we are quite obsessed about religion and the role that it plays in our society. And, of course, myself and my colleagues are very much pro-secular and, and sceptical of religion and its value, and we're often um, wishing it would just go away. So I really want to uh, congratulate and thank you, Matthew, for coming on to the podcast, into the lion's den to some extent, because over the years I've tried to invite um, you know, Christians and theists and other people to come on board and give their side, and it's been really difficult. So... Um, first up, thanks for agreeing to, to just do this uh, in this environment. So kudos to you for that. Um, so Matthew has got some great credentials. He's a Christian, he's a lawyer, he's a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Sydney. Uh, his research interests are metaphysics, history of philosophy and philosophy of religion. Um, he's a former president of the Macquarie University Philosophical Society, which is aka the Platonic Society, and a contributor and editor of its philosophical magazine, Cognito. And he has an abiding interest in bringing a rigorously philosophical and faithfully Christian perspective to the public discussion of religion. Matthew, you sound well-suited for this debate. And also with us then, of course, uh, with Hugh. Hugh is an atheist, a former member of the... a former board member of the Rationalist Society of Australia. He's a writer and speaker on rationalism and philosophical atheism. He has written for the ABC, Fairfax, New Matilda, The Courier Mail and The Huffington Post and he views the use of evidence and reason in public debate as something worth fighting for. So there you go. That's what uh, the background of, of Matthew and Hugh. So we're going to kick off with 10-minute uh, opening addresses um, by each speaker and by agreement, Matthew's going to kick off. So Matthew, give us uh, ten, in 10 minutes or less uh, the affirmative case for uh, does the Abrahamic God exist? Over to you, Matthew. Yeah, sure thing, sure thing. All right. Good evening. Um, So I'd like to thank our host Trevor and my opponent Hugh for inviting me on the show tonight. The kind of God whom I hope to defend here is the God of broadly Abrahamic tradition. That is a single, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving creator and sustainer of reality. 
I think that this God's existence is accessible to reason, and these reasons can be shared even with those who don't initially accept the faith. Of course, if anyone has any questions about how distinctly, distinctively Christian ideas about God relate to the broadly Abrahamic God, I shall be happy to field them during the Q&A. Uh, anyway, in this debate, I hope at least to show that belief in God as the Christians conceive of him is backed by sound reasons, and that the arguments for his existence can withstand rational scrutiny even today in the age of uh, the internal combustion engine and the electric telegraph. So I think we'll get the most bang for our buck by focusing on one argument, the cosmological argument, which looks out into the world for some general feature of things in virtue of which they do not exist in and of themselves, but depend upon ultimately a single being, which is recognizably what we should call God. The cosmological argument, as I will present it, has two parts. First, a cosmological insight, which points to a feature of reality which could only come from some independent thing or other. And second, what I like to call the back end, where we reflect on the attributes of the independent thing and see if they paint a picture of a single being that we could rightly call God. Now, the kind of argument I shall make might not be what, might not be what you're used to. I won't be trying to trace the origins of things backward in time. Rather, I'm going to look downward toward a most fundamental being here and now keeping things in existence, like a musician playing music. Now, if there's such a being, whatever the first moment of time was, God was its source. So if you're interested in beginnings, this is another way to the same end. So cosmological arguments. All cosmological arguments are ultimately arguments from contingency. By contingency, I mean that feature of things whereby they don't exist in their own right, but through something else. Contingent things are contingent upon something else. For example, I don't exist in my own right, since when you take away everything which isn't me, I wouldn't exist either. Now just imagine it for a moment. The water in my body isn't me. You can tell the water isn't me, because when you take out all the water, you still have the water, but not me, right? I'm dependent in part upon this water for my existence. Take it away, and I die. Yet, when we think about it, no individual part of me is the same thing as me either. So if I were to truly exist on my own, you'd have to take away my organs, my limbs, any thoughts I have, even the atoms which make me up, what we're left with. When we try to think of me apart from everything which isn't me, is nothing at all. It's precisely because I am absolutely nothing without other things that I am contingent. And at every moment where I exist, I can only be coherently said to exist in relation to other things. Now, the things on which I depend might themselves depend upon further things. My organs depend upon my atoms, which depend upon fundamental forces and so forth, forming a sort of hierarchy of dependence. Now, we might think of the hierarchy of causes upon which I depend at any particular moment, like a chain of borrowers, where each borrower has all their assets, that is, existence, only in virtue of someone else promising them money and not in their own right. So I don't have existence in my own right, but I borrow it from all the things that make me up and keep me together. But if my components don't have existence in their own right, then they too need to borrow it from elsewhere. Now, no matter how many members of this chain of dependence we have, unless something has existence in an independent way, there could be no dependent things. So if no one in the chain of borrowers has any money, then everyone's broke, right? So although there may be contingent things, not everything can be a borrower of existence. At least one thing in each chain of its dependence needs to actually have existence 
in an unborrowed or independent way in order for anyone to have existence at all. Now, to say that there is at least one independent thing, given that there are dependent things, is not to say that God exists. Maybe the independent thing is, you know, like an atom, just a particle somewhere. Maybe it's a field, maybe it's some kind of mystery goo, right? If we want to call it God, we have to derive what's called the divine attributes. So let's begin with a basic one. Um, as we've already seen, composites depend upon their components. So if a thing is independent, it must be non-composite or simple. Now, the independent thing, if it is simple, must also be unique. Anything of which there could be many contains a real distinction between what is common to the many and what is unique to the particular. So say I have a cat. I can have many cats because there is a way in which each cat is similar to other cats. I can have more than one of it. And there is a way in which each cat is an individual. Each cat is not the same as another cat, right? If each cat contains this distinction between what is shareable and what is individual, the cat must be truly, really composite. So if there is something of which there could be more than one of it, it is composite. And if it is composite, as we have seen, it is dependent. Thus, if a thing is independent, there cannot be, and there cannot be more than one, and, and sorry, if a thing is independent and simple, there cannot be more than one of it. And if there can only be one independent thing, then all dependent things must rely upon the same same independent thing, a single first cause of everything which there is or could be. If everything which there is or could be must be an effect of this first cause, the single first cause, that single first cause of everything which there is or could be must be all-powerful. And since it is simple, moreover, the first cause can have no spatial magnitude. We can't have some of it here and some of it there. Right? Since, moreover, since everything relies on the first cause, its effects are ubiquitous. They aren't localized in particular places. So the first cause is both without extension and without location. The first cause is immaterial. The first cause is also intelligent. Let me explain. To say that the first cause is intelligent is to say that the first cause does something like what we do when we understand, but more perfectly. When we understand things, we grasp them by means of some general principle or pattern which unifies many phenomena. This allows us to contain the phenomena in under our understanding in a general way. This gives us access to phenomena in a more precise way than we could do without understanding. So take, for example, the formula that we all learn in high school, F equals MA, right? Force equals mass times acceleration. We understand not only this or that particular instance of force, but the ratio of force to mass and acceleration itself, and implicitly, therefore, all instances which come under that concept, right? The principle contains all of its instances as implications. But obviously, our understanding is limited. The principles in our understanding are often provisional and apply only to limited domains, and we need to put several of them together to work out how to predict and manipulate the world. On the whole, we only distinctly, sorry, distantly approximate perfect knowledge. If we had ab an absolute first principle, which implies and anticipates everything else, uh, we would have perfect knowledge, right? Um, so the first cause in itself is this very principle which anticipates everything else. It can't be some inert particle, because uh, as particles are part of something larger, they don't 
anticipate the whole which they form. Neither is the first cause just the same thing as the thing it causes, right? For example, the universe is extremely composite, whereas as we've established, the first cause must be non-composite. Rather, the first cause is the total origin of all reality. It cannot source the reality of things from anywhere but itself, since it is prior to everything else. Since it is the cause of all things, the first cause must contain the reality of everything else, just as a profound understanding contains all of its implications. Is it, it is in containing the reality of its effects that the first cause can be said to have knowledge of its effects. So the first cause knows what it causes as their cause. Moreover, since it causes all things, it also knows all things. The first cause is therefore intelligent and all-knowing. The first cause then is not an it, but a him. Since the first cause, being both intelligent and non-composite, can have no unintelligent part of himself, his effects cannot be merely unconscious impersonal products. Rather, they are the objects of an intelligence, and hence the first cause wills his effects. In this light, they are not mere effects, but creations, which he, the first cause, the creator, keeps in being moment by moment. The first cause is the creator. If anything exists at all, then, it is because the creator wills it to be. Now, what is good for a thing is to attain that way of being which is most proper to it. For us humans, to achieve our humanity in the fullest sense is our good. In willing a human's existence, the creator must will its proper way of being for it. In relation to us, he must will our humanity, our humanity for us. If he did not, he would not be creating humans at all. Matthew, but, just letting you know you're up to 10 minutes. Are you yeah, you're ready the, to wind up on this? This is the last attribute. Okay. We're on love, right? Yep. Plus, the creator in creating must will his creatures good. If he wills their, their particular way of being for them, he must will their good. In other words, he must love them since love is to will another's good. Since the creator is the creator of everything, he loves not only us humans by willing our humanity for us, he loves all his creatures. He must be all loving. At this point, it would help to retrace the path that we've walked. We've gone from dependent existence to independent existence. From independent existence, we've gone to a unique, simple, immaterial first cause of everything. From the nature of the first cause, which must contain the reality of its effects, we arrive at an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving creator. This kind of creator is the kind of being who both can be and wills to be involved in your life. Indeed, he already is. As the being in relation to whom we exist and in whose will for us our true good is to be found, he is the one of all beings most worth knowing. And this is the being all men call God. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. That is not what I expected. I was I was looking for <laughs> Charlton Heston and and um, and a biblical Abrahamic sort of character. So, um, Sorry, so, so, so so that's not what I expected. But boy, okay. So Hugh Harris, um, you'll have a chance to do rebuttal and questions later. So yeah. you might just want to uh, kick off with your ten minute opening statement as to. Um, as to does the Abrahamic God exist, uh, the, the case for the negative, please, Hugh. Okay. All right. Thank you, Trevor, the independent creator of this podcast. And uh, thank you, Matthew, for uh, joining the debate tonight. Um, 
my talk is certainly going to be a contrast from, from Matthew's. I'm going to go through seven positive arguments for disbelief in the Abrahamic God. Some arguments which will be familiar to secular listeners, some, well, at least one argument that I think is new. So I'm going to present quite a few arguments and then we can talk about them. They are going to very much relate to what Matthew said, though. So first, quickly, I'm going to ask a little story to set the scene. Let's cast our minds back to the superstitious pre-enlightenment Middle Ages. When we thought storms and lightning were caused by demons and evil spirits, cue the spooky music. Of course, according to Christianity, there were ways of warding off these evil spirits, prayer, exorcism, chanting over bonfires, large processions through the streets, the storm-busting Pope even made and sold his own products, the Agnes dye, which is a disc of wax. Um, but the main way of thwarting Satan was the consecrating and ringing of church bells. Typical inscriptions on church bells describe them as van- vanquishing tempests, repelling demons. And, of course, churches themselves are extremely vulnerable to lightning strikes. Now, science intervened when Benjamin Franklin invented the lightning rod in 1752. Now, somewhat predictably, the clergy uh, opposed these heretical lightning rods. And so bell ringing continued. Over the next 30 years in France, 103 bell ringers were electrocuted holding onto wet bell ropes. Lightning struck the church of San Nazaro near Venice, uh, where... Um, for some unknown reason, 200,000 pounds of gunpowder had been stored. This caused an explosion which wiped out one-sixth of the city of Brescia and killed 3,000 people. The tragic comedy of these events illustrates the folly of false belief. Uh, it, it reminds us that most of what we thought we knew before the 17th century was flat-out wrong. Many of superstitions and false beliefs of old have since evaporated under the bright light of the scientific method. So let's bear that in mind as we uh, consider the enchanted world that gave rise to the Abrahamic religion, as religions as we go through. Now, uh, Matthew helpfully described what is God. I would like to add a little to his description. The Abrahamic God is all the things Matthew said, uh, the uncreated creator of the universe, the only deity, immaterial, non-physical, but also he's specifically concerned with human beings. That is a key function of the all-knowing creator. I don't think Matthew will disagree with me, so I'll move on fairly quickly. My first argument to this debate is that there are more than two options. This debate is about the ground of all existence. It's not just God exists or not God. The other potential options include Creation could have a seed within existence, could be a non-personal creator. It could be quantum theory and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle where uh, quantities of energy randomly fluctuated into existence. Scientists think, some scientists think that this is a, a legitimate theory. Of course, that couldn't have been a universe from nothing. There would have had to have been a brute fact. It could be that the, that nothingness is actually impossible. The universe could be eternal. The Big Bang could have could give way to a big crunch where with a universe that contracts and then starts again. There could be just a simple brute fact, such as an eternal quantum field or dimension that, that sits within existence. There could be uh, universes giving rise to other universes in a multi multiverse scenario. It could be that pantheism is true, where God is the whole universe, or deism, whereas it's a non-interventionist God, so not Abrahamic. Or it could be something that we can't even imagine. 
Uh, next argument, the burden of proof. I just want to quickly say that the onus is on the claim maker. So the onus is on Matthew to prove uh, evidence in favour of God existing. The God hypothesis is unfalsifiable. No evidence can be provided to prove it false. We can't disprove it, so we should legitimately withhold ev- uh, belief in God in the absence of sufficient evidence, just as we do with unicorns, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, I could go on, etc. The default position is that God does not exist. Third argument, there is no evidence. There is no actual empirical evidence. By theism's own definition, God sits outside of space-time. Therefore, we cannot know him directly. Argument number four. God is not looking good at this stage, by the way. But argument number four, the effects of God. Scientist Victor Stenger argued that if there was an interventionist Abrahamic God, then we should be able to easily detect and observe his effects. Alas, we cannot, and not for want of trying, Prayer has been studied, does not work. Miracles are unverified. We should see evidence, but alas, there is none. Many gods, 1,000 gods in recorded history, 10,000 religions, which is more likely that only one god exists and all the others are fake or that none exist. I think that Matthew's rationale should show, or if we are to believe in the Abrahamic God, we should show why it rejects all other gods as well as uh, proposing the Abrahamic God. Also, the problem of evil. Everyone, well, most of us would know about this one, but this specific question, why can't a God who is all good, all powerful and has free will make humans all good and with free will? And why does he create a world where nature lays waste to thousands in natural disasters? My um, final argument is um, about evolution. Human evolution conflicts with the doctrine of special creation. We know that a lot of people, particularly in America, in highly religious countries, oppose evolution. I think this is why. We know that under the Abrahamic God, humans are specially created as a principal focus of God's creation. Genesis says that God willed us for our own sake. If special creation is false, then the Abrahamic God is false. So I'm going to give a brief account of our human evolution, showing how it contrasts. We can fully account for the advent and development of humans through the fossil record and genetics. We need of no other explanation. We diverged from primates 5 million years ago. From proto-humans, walking apes, we evolved into stone-wielding cavemen 2.5 million years ago. That included species, which are human species, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Homo heidelbergensis. Homo means human. These evolved from 800,000 to now into more modern human species, Neanderthals, Homo sapien idaltu, Denisovans, Homo floriensis, Homo floriensis is a pygmy humans from the tiny island of Flores in Indonesia. There were red deer cave people and they all became extinct, but we are left. We are Homo sapiens sapiens. Our traits have evolved and phenotypes through gradually through random mutations and natural selection. It's a gradual long process. There was no special day when an ape birthed a human. We are a continuous unbroken line. The species names are human creations, reifications, not things in reality. We are indivisible in kind or nature from those who preceded us. In direct contrast to being specially set aside, other human species came from the same ancestors as us and existed alongside us. And that shows us they came from the same ancestors showing us that other outcomes were possible. It's defying the special creation belief that we are predetermined in God's image. Uh, I think it's Imago, Imago die that our traits are predetermined to be of a specific kind. 
modern humans are, um, share a common ancestor with Neanderthals, Homo hodobergensis. They, these moved to Europe, becoming Neanderthal, Neanderthals, so they're a more cold climate adapted type of human, whereas we stayed in Africa, becoming Homo sapiens sapiens later to go all around the world. So all non-African humans have a 4% DNA, which is Neanderthal. Neanderthals were 99.7% genetically identical to human. We actually bred we actually bred with Neanderthals. They were distinct, though, with larger brain cases, stronger bones, stocky, slower, smaller communities, but they were intelligent. They buried their dead with flowers. They were capable of symbolic thought. They had artwork, cave paintings, complex stone tools, equivalent to modern humans. Using, using rudimentary chemistry, they developed a complex synthetic glue uh, for fixing their arrow tips, and yet they became extinct. So, in summary, the number of points stand out. Evolution provides a sufficient explanation for the existence of humans and for our development as Homo sapiens sapiens. We are in need of no other answer. Once we can explain how we have come about, we don't need to go to the beginning of time to explain the whole universe. We are not predetermined in nature. We are indivisible from our ancestors and we continue to evolve one day becoming a different species, showing quite clearly that we are not set aside. The difficult question for religion is why would God choose to create our species in his own image through such an uncertain and random natural process over 5 million years, allowing almost identical species to become extinct, 99.7%, before intervening supernaturally at an arbitrary point in time to magically insert the immortal soul into modern, modern humans. That belief is implausible. It doesn't make any sense. And just like meteorology explained how the air works and how the weather works and it displaced belief in ghosts and devils in the air, we should, we should understand that evolution similarly supersedes special creation. And since special creation is implausible, then the Abrahamic God is implausible. Therefore, the Abrahamic God does not exist. And that brings me to the end of my argument. Thank you, Hugh. So um, I've got a chance to ask questions now. So my first question is to Matthew. So, Matthew, um, that was a real fire hose of information in your 10 minutes. And, and the concepts uh, jumped pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd need to like read a transcript and see because there were a number of times there where I felt that you stated a proposition and said mm-hmm. therefore and yeah. led to a new proposition which to me didn't necessarily follow. But yeah. Yeah. Um, wh- one of the things that it seemed to me that you were doing was sort of tracing back to the beginning or the almost the big bang in a way to the to the first cause and at one point there you said that first cause knows what it's doing and it has a purpose and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um how do you know that that's the case and it wasn't just possible that it was random events right. like okay. how can you be so sure of that sure. yeah all right sure um Okay, so where do I begin? Right. So firstly, um, I think I should make very clear uh, that the nature of the argument is to look downwards towards the foundation of reality, like right now, right? So I'm not looking backwards in time. Like, so I basically, so I cribbed my argument mainly from a guy called uh, Thomas Aquinas, right, who's this medieval philosopher theologian. And, he, you know, he said, he was famous for saying, well, as far as we know, time never had a beginning, right? But nevertheless, you know, we know that God exists because we can right here and now look down 
towards what supports everything in existence. So that was sort of the thrust of my argument. I wasn't looking back in time. I was looking at right now. Um, but so in relation to your question about uh, God's intelligence, um, so my argument proceeds in uh, certain logical steps, right? So uh, I, in order to establish his intelligence, I need to establish that he is like right here and now the first cause of everything and everything right here and now depends upon him. But if everything right here and now and indeed at every time, right, depends upon in sort of the present tense, depends upon the first cause, then the first cause must have in itself the total reality of whatever it produces, right? Because otherwise, otherwise there's nowhere else for that reality to come from, right? Uh, in, in relation to subatomic particles, you might say, oh, you know, they can form, um, they can form uh, structures with each other, but each subatomic particle doesn't know what it's doing because it doesn't in any sense have in itself the thing that it forms, right? The form is imposed from outside. Okay, let, Whereas, let's just, let me just sort of um, try and yeah. get to the nub of it here, though, Matthew, yeah. Is, yeah. is you're saying that there's intention. Um, yes. And other people would argue that it's it's possible that it's random and that sure. through evolution right. uh, things happen. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, how could you prove to them, oh, no, 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 there's intention here, it's, it's not random, you're wrong. How can you so demonstrate that? So I wouldn't oppose the kind of intentionality that God has with randomness as we experience it in the world, right? So... I'm going to preempt my own rebuttal to Hugh here, but he was talking about the evolutionary process and how that's random. Sure. But if my argument is correct, then at every stage of that process, God is keeping, you know, everything in existence. So the, whatever reality is in that process was in real, was in God first. And that sense in which the reality outside of him is preceded by his internal reality is the sense in which I say that God has knowledge and creates with knowledge, right? So because things actually do have existence, they do have natures. And when we know things, we know things precisely by reflecting their natures in ourselves, in our understanding. So God, so whereas we reflect the natures of things after the fact, God pre-exists the natures of things in himself, right? And that's the sense in which I said that God is intelligent. Now, if God is intelligent, then as I argued, um, you know, and he's simple, uh, there's no unintelligent part of himself. So everything he creates must therefore be a product of that intelligence. And that's the reason why I would say that. Okay. okay. Seems, and, and, just, is not. and just follow up to that then. Sure. Why then the Abrahamic God? So mm-hmm. there's Still a number of gods out there that you could mm-hmm. latch onto. And sure. my understanding of the Abrahamic God is... Mm-hmm is the one that is described in the First Testament. So um, known to the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. Yeah. So that, that's a God who is quite specific and different to, say, the Greek gods. So yes. why would you be confident that the Abrahamic God exists and not uh, Zeus or Apollo or some other uh, Greek god, for example, what what uh, I I I'm struggling because you you haven't mentioned anything in the traditional Abrahamic god sense. So, from what you've yeah, said yeah. so far, I'd have no idea that you're actually a Christian believer or not. Um, so yeah. so the the, the, Bi- the the Bible Abrahamic <laughs> god, uh, um, yeah. you mm-hmm. accept that that god exists, 
why that God and not one of the other gods uh, uh, as this first cause? Yeah, sure. So I think... um, Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so the Abrahamic God isn't as sort of, even as sort of Christians understand him, isn't necessarily like sort of a social, isn't definitely isn't actually a social product, right? So when we look, when we look at the ways in which various, so any kind of basically um, developed philosophical monotheism would be, I think, the kind of God that the Abrahamic tradition says intervened in a special way. So you can think of it as sort of like, you know, the sun, right? One person thinks it's a sustained fusion reaction. Another person thinks it's a giant ball of dung being rolled across the sky, right? They've got different accounts of the same thing, but it's the same underlying phenomenon that they're referring to if they refer to the one God. So why not something like Zeus, right? Why why not something like Athena? Well, the thing is that, um, you know, uh, there are no... uh, So the Abrahamic God, the kind of monotheistic single principle from which everything else comes, is a thesis supported by the existence of contingent things, right? Whereas contingent things can't tell us about whether there's such a further contingent thing. Um, And the arguments that I give don't support the existence of something like Zeus. I mean, maybe, you know, Christians believe in angels, you know, I'm I'm not here to argue for that. But, uh, you know, whether whether these other powers do or don't exist is not really my bag. If I don't have evidence of them, I don't accept it. But since I do have evidence of the one God, the one God who creates everything, you know, and I can... Ah, so what is that That evidence being the argument you've given in the first 10 minutes or evidence being yeah, the yeah. Bible? Yes. So that argument I give in the first 10 minutes is like a sort of philosophical distillation of why it's rational. But, to I, okay, but that argument in the first 10 minutes yeah. could have described a future Apollo or Zeus. Well, it, can't, it can't describe something that only exists in the future, right? It describes something which is eternal, which exists at every time and sustains everything at every time. So, I mean, other cultures might call it, like, for example, you know, Plato, when he, ref- when he referred to the one which is the source of everything else, he called it Zeus, right? But the name is kind of in- indifferent to me. What matters is what the ultimate reality is like, right? So what the Abrahamic tradition distinctly says about ultimate reality is that it is single, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and keeps everything. So is it the monotheism as opposed to the polytheism that is important to you yes. to be so, consistent with the, your first 10-minute sort of discussion? Yes. Is that right? Yes. So, But couldn't a monotheistic sort of being decide to split itself up into a polytheistic just because it felt like it? <clears throat> like in Catholicism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, like couldn't I, that first cause have evolved into multiple gods if it just wished to? I don't think so. So remember when I was talking about whether there's more than one god, I said that um, anything which is even potentially multiplicable has to have a respect in which it is similar to other things and a respect in which it is sort of individual to itself, and these can't be the same, right? But if it has this internal distinction between what is shareable and what is not shareable, then it's composite. But if it's composite, then it can't be the first course because it's dependent upon its components. Mm-hmm. Right. So for that reason, no, God cannot change or split himself or that kind of thing, because he is in order to be God at all. He has to be like fundamentally one and can't be dependent upon parts. Or yeah. OK, I should ask a question of Hugh. Um, um, Hugh, um, science. Um, let me just see what, what did I have for you here? Um, Hugh, what, um, 
What evidence would be sufficient for you to accept the existence of God? Um, I think numerous things. So if, if prayers were answered, if the prophecies written in the religious books actually came to pass, if they weren't filled with sort of ludicrous stories that beggar belief so that you are forced to reinterpret the uh, the scriptures, and I, I mean virtually all of them uh, here, not, not just Christianity or the Old Testament or the New Testament. You have to reinterpret them creatively to try to make them make sense. And then you have theologians creating crazy sort of, uh, things such as we were talking about the singular God of the Abrahamic religion being split into a triune God of um, of the Jesus, the Holy Ghost and God. And, you know, and then there's a whole lot of other people who are divine as well. So um, I think it's the, I think that the story would have to make sense. There'd have to be evidence for it. And there would have to be um a way that that evidence would um, be verifiable and also that the claims that people make of personal experience would um, would not be sufficient either. There would need to be um, verification of people, you know, people who say that they experience God personally and therefore that's their evidence for the existence of God. All right. I Another question for you, Hugh, just to keep it yes. fair, that'll be two each then, would be, Looking at climate change, most of us accept the view of 97% of scientists. We don't understand the science and we ridicule laymen who attempt to pick away at the science if they are not properly qualified with at least a university degree in some sort of science discipline. Uh, So if, for example, 97% of theologians say God exists, would you accept their verdict or are you like an uneducated climate change sceptic with just enough shallow knowledge to be dangerous? No, I don't know. I, <laughs> uh, no, I, well, I, I, it makes me think of Christopher Hitchens' thing that he refuses to accept any consensus and if you disagree with him, you can stand in line, take a ticket and kiss his, kiss his uh, rear. Um, I don't think you should accept consensus. I think you should accept what the evidence and the argument um, says, and I think the I obviously you you know that the the evidence is we have a lot of different competing religions. We don't just have one God, and we have a lot of people thirty percent in Australia who don't believe in any God. And then amongst the rest, we have a numerous competing different religions. The largest one being Catholicism at about twenty one percent, something like that. And all over the world, people are split on this question. I think the interesting thing about the evidence is that in countries that are more educated where technology and science is at its highest levels, that's where religion is tending to be at its lowest levels and religion is stronger in the third world and in poor nations where poverty, hardship uh, is as is the most apparent. I think that gives us a good, in, good indication of how we should view the evidence. Okay, so that's uh, questions from me and we're up to... Um one rounder for a battle, so gentlemen, where you can um, deal with the argument uh, proposed by the other gentleman and give your sort of criticism or critique of that. So I think, Matthew, we're going to start with you for five minutes on a rebuttal of what you said. Go ahead. Sure. All right. Excellent. Well, uh, it's good to be back. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's think about the arguments that Hugh has offered. 
right? So he was giving us a narrative that, you know, with science now, we don't need God. Um, and he's sort of advanced uh, several key lines, which I think, um, let's uh, just recap. So the first thing that Hugh takes issue with is that the Abrahamic God cares about human beings, and there's, you know, uh, oh, sorry, hold on. Sorry, the first, the first argument that Hugh gave was that the Abrahamic God is not the only game in town, right? The ultimate reality could be impersonal. You know, or it might be that reality doesn't even need a cause. If the universe is eternal or the universe is cyclical or there's a multiverse, maybe such a thing doesn't need a cause. Um, now, I don't think that any of these alternatives in light of my argument are really live if the argument succeeds, right? So as far as non-personal goes, I've already argued that since the first cause contains the reality of its effects in itself. In that sense, it resembles what we do when we know things by containing the reality of things in our understanding. And in that sense, the first cause knows its effects. But if it knows, if it's intelligent, then it's not non-personal, right? And its effects can't just be sort of like, you know, sweat that, or body odor that sort of involuntarily comes out. It's got to be something that the first cause intentionally wills. Um, so the second thing is that maybe the universe doesn't need to have a course and, you know, there's all these possibilities, but I've already, we've already seen that anything which is composite and the universe is really extremely composite, uh, is something which depends upon other things for its existence, i.e. at the very least, the things, you know, the things which make it up. Uh, but in that case, you know, no universe, whether cyclical or multidimensional or eternal could exist even for a moment, unless there was something utterly independent fundamentally sustaining in being. Uh, the last possibility that Hugh raised is that maybe the first cause is like a deistic god, right? He's the great engineer who set the wheels in motion and just left us to our own devices, absentee parent of the god. Uh, but I don't think that this is allowable either from the argument that I gave, because, you know, if everything at every moment depends upon uh, a single uh, ultimate reality to keep it in being, uh, then, you know, and that thing keeps things in being through its act of willing them to be, then there is no possibility of God just leaving us off to our own devices. Every moment that we live and breathe and think is a moment at which God wills us to do so. He either wills or allows us to do what we do. So my, the kind of God that my argument establishes is a God which is perpetually deeply involved in his creation. Um, and yes, so that, that suffices, I think, to eliminate all the other options that uh, Hugh raised. Now, obviously, I've already dealt with the sort of the polytheistic option, which didn't raise. But uh, yes, polytheism is not an option because, as, we all, as we've seen, the first cause must be one. And the second option, second argument he raised was the burden of proof. The default position is that God does not exist. I actually don't have an issue with this. I think that we do need good arguments to believe that he exists, at least if we're approaching him only through reason. Right. Um, and that's why I took up philosophy. I thought it's a really fun way to know that God exists. Now, I don't think reason is the only way to know that God exists. And maybe there's a uh, difference there. But at least to convince someone who doesn't already believe, I think that and who demands rational reasons. Yeah. In a rational debate, supply rational arguments. I agree. Uh, there's no evidence for God's existence, Hugh says, but I think that's incorrect. Right. If contingent things are evidence of God's existence, then evidence of God's existence is literally everywhere we should be able to observe God's effects? I say, yes, we do observe his effects. They are, everything is an effect of God. So, um, uh, you know, the, the arguments for God's existence are unfalsifiable. Well, you know, um, they're not empirical propositions about what may or may not happen. And therefore, you know, where some 
possible state of affairs might be realized where God does not exist, but they are very disputable in that uh, maybe the inferences don't follow, right? Just look for the flaws in the logic. So I think that as far as, you know, arguments go for God's existence, the arguments of the kind that I gave, you know, they're pretty good. They, they meet the demands of the most demanding skeptic. Um, so the, another thing that Hugh raised, the problem of evil, why can't God make humans all good with free will? Uh, well, the problem of evil is a very deep question, and I don't pretend to have all the answers, but here's my sort of suggestion, right? We are the kinds of things which are native to our particular world with its particular history. If God had made the world significantly different, he'd have some other humans, maybe, but not us, right? So if, he, if God loves us, if God wants us to be, he has to allow the kind of world and the kind of evil in which we exist. Uh, so I would propose that so the problem of evil is an internal problem within theism, right? So it's like, how is the evil in the world consistent with God's love? And my answer is, well, if God loves us, then he kind of, he, ha he has to allow, if God loves us, us particular human beings who are native to this world, with this history, with our parents, with our evolutionary history, <laughs> he kind of has to allow the world in which we live, if he has chosen to love us. Okay, Matthew, so that's, case, that is the five minutes. You want to quickly oh, wrap up with anything? Sure. Sorry, evolution. Yeah. Well, yeah, so evolution, again, falls to the arguments that I've already given. Uh, you know, the entire history, the entire evolutionary history of the world, I accept, I'm willing to accept what the best science says on that topic. Because if, it, you know, since evolution did happen and since contingent things, including evolution, must be caused by God, God must have been the intention underlying the whole natural process which led to us. Uh, you know, we resemble God not in the sense of uh, necessarily being made by magic, as it were, but by ha distinctly having him as our highest end and aspiration. And, yeah, that would be it. Okay, thanks, Matthew. Hugh, you've got uh, five minutes plus a little bit more for rebuttal. Off you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks, Matthew, for that. Um, I, okay, well, I'm rebutting against the cosmological argument that um, you presented. Mm -hmm. um, I was a little bit confused by it. Um, <clears throat> it was kind of like the arg argument for contingency, but a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So starting with the cosmological argument, it's, uh, I like it because it appeals to our intuition that there must be a cause or reason for our existence. It's got a long philosophical history uh, going back to the ancient Greeks, the argument for first cause. However, it doesn't really do much other than restate the riddle of existence. Why is there something rather than nothing? And suggests we need an answer for it. And yes, of course, we, uh, we already know that. Um, we've already established other myriad options for the foundation of existence. We haven't, um, we certainly haven't disproven any of those. And uh, the arguments, I, I'm sort of para paraphrasing here what you've said as a syllogism, and I also have written down uh, a version of Aquinas' argument, the version done, version done by uh, philosopher Pruss, uh, that you might be familiar with, Matthew. Mm -hmm. um, what you seem to be saying is that you're arguing down rather than back in time. Yes. And yet you are coming to a first cause. Mm -hmm. The first cause is uh, got to be before other things. So that's, or the first thing, it's got to have a relationship to um, time. Going through the syllogism of what you sort of have said, you seem to say all things are dependent on other things for their existence. And I'm happy to discuss this if I get this wrong, by the way. All things are dependent on other things for their existence, syllogism one. 
Syllogism two, there must be one independent thing which accounts for them. Syllogism three, we call that thing God. And then you do the, I think you referred to them as secondary arguments to get from that first cause to get to the Abrahamic God. Okay, so I think the, the largest problems in the cosmological argument apply to that second thing, but I also think that most people, including you, can see what those problems are. It just doesn't get you there. It's very difficult to get there, and we'll get to that. But first up, it, we seem to be missing a premise as to why is the independent thing accountable for all dependent things? You mentioned at one stage that you could have different chains of uh, dependent things relying on other independent things. I'm not sure why or if there is any foolproof way of getting that we have to have one independent thing. Couldn't we have multiple, as the Greek gods, multiple uh, multiple responsibilities for generating existence? I don't think there is a proof and I don't think we can know. Now, the crucial objection throughout the whole history of philosophy is that the argument assumes the causal principle or the principle of contingency, dependency, operates outside of the universe when there was nothing. So you're deriving this argument out of what we notice in our own personal experience. The expression seems to be made a lot, we all know that. We, we don't know it. We only know it in relation to individual aspects of our current existence. I think it was David Hume who who first suggested that perhaps we can't we can't say what happens before the universe exists we don't know if the causal principle still applies and i wonder whether you would accept that believing in god that you believe that god created all the laws of nature and all the ways in which the world interacts with us so wouldn't god have actually created the causal principle could the causal principle actually exist in a in a a um atmosphere where there's no time i don't know i don't <laughs> think it could um and the uh the cosmological argument appeals to the uh leibniz's godfrey leibniz's principle of sufficient reason which um what you're calling the foundation of existence is often referred to as the necessary being you'd agree with that uh leibniz said why is there something rather than nothing the sufficient reason is found in a necessary being bearing the reason for his existence within itself However, you could you could just slightly rephrase those words. Instead of saying a necessary being bearing the reason for existence, you could say that being itself is necessary. Why why couldn't existence itself be the necessary being? Why couldn't the universe itself be the necessary being? And why couldn't something within the universe be the thing that gives seed to the universe? I don't think there's any justification for looking outside space and time to say that this is definitely what caused the universe. And this is not even the biggest problem with this argument. From uh, The argument comes from Parmenides, who said, from nothing, nothing comes. If there's nothing, it's hard to imagine that God exists. If God exists, he must be something. He is not uh, nothing, even if we call him invisible, immaterial, and all of those things. We are giving him a lot of different attributes. Not only, he's not a simple being either, uh, which was a key premise of your argument. He is there is no simple being which is capable of creating the whole universe. This being must be incredibly complex. He knows the whole future. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. And in your argument, I also noticed that you tended to say he must be extremely intelligent. You didn't say he must be uh, omniscient. You didn't say he must be all-powerful. Perhaps you did. If you did, I apologise. But uh, 
what I heard was you you tended to um, prevaricate a little bit on saying that God had these absolute qualities. Well, just tell us now, Matthew. Is he is he omniscient or not? Does he is he all powerful? Argue for that, and we'll bring it up later. Okay, all right. Sorry, what was it? He's gonna. We'll get to that later. So. Hugh, I forgot to press the five-minute timer when you started. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm guessing now that you're probably close to the five minutes. Are you okay if I stop you now and just, or you, uh, you want to keep keep going with? Can I? Yeah. I'll give you. I'll just give you one final point sure. on yeah. the cosmological argument. Yeah. Um, now I have to admit, Matthew sent me his. Uh, presentation he did elsewhere so i had a bit of warning that he was going to talk about the cosmological argument which i think i should tell everyone who's listening to this because i feel it gives me something of an advantage to know that this is what you're going to talk about and this is what i have to defend so i I think it'd be nicer to say that up front but um the stanford encyclopedia of philosophy notes that in the late 20th century philosophers who are both theists and non-theists generally have shown a healthy skepticism about the argument so even theists who argue strongly for the existence of God, as uh, Matthew would be extremely familiar with Alvin Plantinga, he says that, um, in quotation marks, this piece of natural theology is ineffective. Also, Richard Swinburne strongly argues for God elsewhere, and he says that this version of the cosmological argument is not deductively valid. It doesn't follow deductively because it would be incoherent to assert that a complex physical universe exists and that God does not exist if it were valid. Um, also, when we're talking, oh, I could go on, but perhaps well, we can get yeah, to that. You'll get to, you'll, get a, you'll get a chance, guys, just to uh, launch some questions at each other um, mm-hmm. and um, sort of do a bit of toing froing, I guess. I've just yeah. got um, a question for Matthew. Just um, monotheism is important to you in this argument. Yes. And, and you're not prepared to accept that the um, all-powerful God could just decide to split himself into yeah. into separate yeah. ones. So, so basically, I got the impression from you that um, really the, all monotheistic religions are really believing in the same thing. Is is that kind of roughly what you're saying? So, it doesn't matter what they call it. It's the monotheistic God that you're talking about. They might give it a different name, but yeah. is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's that's my inclination. So when we talk about what actually exists versus what obviously people say lots of things about God, right? But underneath what they say, there is a kind of at least if you're on monotheist, there's a certain internal logic to monotheism that implies that you're talking about this. Okay. Thing. So so the backstory of the Bible as yeah. a version of the Abrahamic God. Yeah. Is it important at all if there's another religion with a monotheistic God that has a completely different story. Yeah. Uh, is the Bible irrelevant then? Is it because the key thing for you is monotheism, and mm-hmm. therefore the backstory to the monotheistic God is is okay. is really yeah. unimportant? Because I'm trying to get to why you would choose to be a Christian. Yeah rather than one of the other monotheistic religions? That, that is a fantastic question. I'm so glad you asked it. Uh, so um, I think we've got to distinguish between what monotheistic religions say about God and what monotheistic religions say, right? So religions are not just what kind of God do we believe in, but how do we relate to God? How does God relate to us? And there's all sorts of things and mutually incompatible things that they say. And obviously, when it comes to how we ought to relate to God and how God does relate to us. I side with Abrahamic religions in general and Christianity in particular. So 
um, you know, so for example, some, some people's ideas of monotheism, like say Aristotle's, right? So Aristotle's God, who is, you know, Aristotle is the source of a lot of my arguments here, but his kind of God doesn't understand the world. He contemplates only himself and nothing else, right? But for me, I think that, you know, God contemplates, indeed loves the world because in contemplating himself, he's also contemplating himself as the cause of everything else. So I think that's important. So what I think Abrahamic religion distinctly contributes is the idea that God cares about human beings in their totality, in their sort of humanity and wants to have a sort of, and values, you know, his humans in all their historical contingency, right? That's why it's important that he picks out a particular people, a particular community. And in the end, you know, I believe incarnated as a single human being, he's, aim is to reconcile all of humanity, even in the historical contingency to himself. And that's not something that sort of other religions say, for example, philosophical Hinduism would uh, acknowledge, right? Philosophical Hindus, they believe in God in terms of an ultimate reality, but they want to lose themselves in this ultimate reality, right? The historical contingency is something to be, something to be released from. You want to be released from the wheel of the world, right? You want to become one with God in the absolute literal sense, you know, to the extent that you lose your humanity. So no, I think Abrahamic religion, the general approach is, um, is, uh, <laughs> is sounder, I think, and more human affirming than other religions. And more to the point, uh, I'm a Christian in particular, because I think the Christian, at least in terms of reasons I could give you, uh, the, the Christian account of what God has done to unify humanity to himself without sort of just getting rid of humanity uh, I think is is the most compelling, right? I believe that God okay. became incarnate, so He relates to us on a human level. Okay, but, but so so to summarise, you like the idea of the Abrahamic God because, in your view, He this God should be a caring God, and therefore the Abrahamic uh, faiths um, are in line with the idea of a caring God. Is that correct? That's right. A, yep. a God who cares about what happens to human beings. Okay. So if the evidence, though, on our planet is contrary to that, that things are happening and we look at it and we go, clearly if there was an all-powerful God who cared, then these terrible things that are happening wouldn't happen. So you don't see that there's evidence, in fact, that there, that God is uncaring if he does exist because of the terrible things that uh, we see it happen on this planet. You, you don't see that as evidence of an uncaring God. I don't. I have to say that I don't think the evidence that God is uncaring, at least compared to the evidence that He is caring, is tremendously good. Right. So, like the last part of my argument was showing that if God wills things to be, if He wills us to be, He must also will our good, and therefore must love us. Now, one reason why a God might love us and yet allow bad things to happen is that bad things are happening happening are an intrinsic part of the history which leads up to us and i think that seems to be true like without natural disasters and plagues and so forth or without something of the kind like we have a very different world very different humans wouldn't have us so at least part of the answer i think is that god wants us to be and wants us to flourish but he also allows the kinds of historical contingencies and evils that allow us, us fallen creatures, to exist at all. Like, you know, why he's chosen to love us rather than something else, maybe that's not something I'm prepared to answer. But at least I can tell from, you know, from understanding what it is for God to create that he must love us. And I think, to me, that's sufficient. Okay. Well, um, 
guys, uh, questions for each other. So maybe Matthew, do you do you want to have you got a question for Hugh oh, on his? I've just, and, I've just and, spoken. I think Hugh should have a go. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, Hugh, go ahead. Do you want to ask a question of Matthew at all, um, or, or examine in detail, or get him to clarify anything, or or yeah, or, or, I guess. I guess could I might just I have a couple of questions, but I, I wanted to perhaps address what you just what you just said there about the problem of evil. Yeah. And before I say that, I don't think the problem of evil is your your biggest problem here, but I think it still is an insurmountable problem. Um, when when you say that you you don't have a problem with God creating everything because He had to will it a certain way. I can't really see anything in the argument that says, well, you know, when we talk about how uh, the argument for objective moral values, that um, how you get away from the urethro dilemma is that because God is good in his very nature or else, you know, what is good, you know, is it good, good, is what is good, good just because God decides it's good. Therefore, if God just said that it's okay to torture children, you know, like he does in the Bible. But when he says things like that, is that, uh, arbitrarily good or is it good just because God says it's good? Is there a good independent of that? And the way around that is to say that God is good, right? So when we've got evil everywhere, how 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 can that possibly, uh, it's logically inconsistent and contradictory that you can have a God is good because a God being omnipotent could have created us so that we are similarly good. So free will isn't a good enough answer because God has the power to have created us and we were supposed to be in his image. So presumably he could have created us as being all good with free will. Therefore, the evil that's attributed to humans that we see all over history shouldn't be there. Do you, how do you respond to that? Um, so, okay, the problem is, right. So the idea, let me just uh, rephrase just to make sure I get it. Um, the idea is that um, God in his omnipotence could have made, as far as we know, perfect humans with free will no not perfect just good 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 yeah he will make perfect humans with free will at one point right like we will be made perfect so christians do believe something like that so um the question then is well given that free will is not sort of you know god is not constrained by the existence of free will uh why why does evil exist so that seems to be a question as far as i understand it and yeah i would say I kind of agree. That's why I don't use free will defenses too often. I'm not a huge fan. Uh, what I would say is that without the free will actions of good and evil people in the past, none of us would would exist, right? Genghis Khan hadn't seeded my ancestors, maybe, you know, uh, it, it, you know, I probably wouldn't exist. Uh, now, and everyone has a history that's sort of bound up with the world of suffering in which we live. Uh, so if God has chosen to love us, the particular human beings of this world, I don't see how he could have created us without something like, you know, maybe he can plus or minus a little bit of evil here and there. But, you know, you can't create a world of a radically different character and still get us the particular creatures that he loves. And I agree. Th- I agree with that. The first but, thing but, that but, you will, in, if you love something, is you will it to be, right? As I was arguing earlier, if you yes. love something, you will it's good. The very first thing is that it exists and you allow, and if you love it, you allow evil for the sake of its existence fundamentally. And I think that's 
more or less how I would answer the problem of evil. It's not a complete or satisfying answer. I think. No, I think you would. I think you would agree that <laughs> but, uh, he he wills us to be a certain way, but he could have easily willed us to be good. Well, and he, and we still would have got to being where we are today. We just would have been different, well, and that would have been good. Different. We wouldn't we wouldn't be blowing up the World Trade Towers, <laughs> yeah, and we yeah. wouldn't have the Middle East yeah. being in the state it's in. Yeah. So the argument that we got here because of the way he willed us, it's. It's not a satisfactory answer as to why he couldn't have made us good in the first place. Well, us is speaking pretty broadly, right? If he loves us in particular, if he loves me and you, you know, the individual human beings who are native to our world, he yeah. can't create a very different world and still have us. So what I believe is not that God loves sort of humanity in the abstract. I think he loves each and every human being, right? So if he loves each and every human being, he will allow, although he doesn't like it, he will allow the world in which we live for our sake. And I think that's the case, not just for human beings, but for animals, right? Why is evolution so terrible? Well, because he loves the particular animals who exist as well. So, you know, he doesn't want a, a different history with different animals. He has chosen in his divine freedom to love this particular set of things. So, yeah, yeah okay. so that's what, that's, that would be my answer. Okay, question from you, Matthew, for Hugh. Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, sorry, let me just take a look at the remarks. Um, so what, what do you think is um, the um, mistake in my derivation of God's omniscience? So just to clarify, I did argue for his omniscience. Let me just bring it up. Um, so for, so I, I proceed in stages, right? So in order to show that he's omniscient, first you have to know that he knows something. So I showed, well, the first cause, because it contains the reality of its effects, must in that sense resemble what we do when we know things we contain the reality of the things that we know he contains the reality of his effects yes. uh, so in that sense he's not and because his effects are everything he must know everything and therefore he is all-knowing so ah that's why i didn't use the word omniscience i used the word all-knowing and that's that's probably why it wasn't caught um but yes so that's why i would say that god is all-knowing and what did you think would be the problem? Uh, well I, I i must have misheard you I, I i thought you said he must be very intelligent or he must be yeah. extremely intelligent and you may have gone from very intelligent to conclude all with all-knowing yeah. so that's fair enough mm -hmm. but i still don't think the argument gets you there because it's, it's evolution shows us that through nature we can we can derive intelligence where there is no intelligence um, if you have to take away your argument for a second here and presume that God does not exist, and if you look at the world without that presumption, you can see that intelligence is formulated out of a natural process. So I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, a good argument to say that just because we can, we are intelligent and that we can reason that there must be someone who knows. Uh, the, that the creator must be to su have some relation to us. There could be uh, millions of other species in different parts of the universe that are nothing like us, but are, but can also reason in different ways. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily true that you can say that because God creates everything in the universe, that he knows everything in the universe. I don't think that that's a non sequitur. That doesn't follow. If you look at the Big Bang, the universe is a very different place in terms of matter uh, in terms of its size, in terms of what it is, uh, you know, things change. Uh, there, there were dinosaurs. There were there are a whole lot of things in the universe that didn't exist at one point that that existed later. So just because you create something does not mean that you can see the future. Right. Am I allowed to respond to that? Sure. Do please. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So um, 
Where would I want to start? <laughs> um, oh dear, sorry. I forgot about where I was going with that. Uh, right, so I was talking about intelligence and all-knowing, and your response is, oh, yes. Right, so first of all, I want to clarify that I don't think that the reason that God is intelligent is because we are intelligent, right? So the structure of my argument is that when we consider what it is for the first cause to be the total cause of things, it has the reality of other things inside itself, it resembles what we have insofar as we are intelligent. Yeah, that's what I was referring to, the yeah. resembling. So I'm saying that not, ju- not just that sort of, uh, you know, we are intelligent, therefore God is intelligent, but that we can rightly call God intelligent because in this respect, what God does is what we do when we. Yes, I, I agree with that. But all I'm saying is that your argument doesn't follow that because you think that God resembles us, that God must be intelligent or that it must be something yeah. that resembles us. There's no necessity for that. Well, I'm saying that he resembles us in the respect of our intelligence. So what our intelligence lets us do is contain the reality of the things that we understand in our understanding, right? Yeah. And God, as our creator, does exactly the same, well, not exactly the same, but the same thing in a more perfect way. He contains the reality of his effects as yeah. their cause. Yeah, so... That that would be the logic that I'm making, and I think it's it's still it still holds up. I'm not sure if you. I think it's a non sequitur, but anyway, let's move yeah, on. You can agree okay. to disagree on that one. Well, agree to disagree. <laughs> okay, <laughs> whose turn is it? Uh, um, maybe uh, either one of you who's got a pressing question jump in, or you want to push on a particular point that the other person made. Okay, can I can I say that the cosmological argument that you present and the way you present it. Uh, contains a lot of references to the way the world is. Like the, there's water in the human body. Mm-hmm. There are, I think you mentioned cats. There yeah. are animals. There are, you know, that's what the, the the world is like. But if we look at what the world is actually like uh, in terms of a God who supposedly created us, you know, humans as his special creation, it doesn't, the same logic doesn't follow and, in fact, it's the other way round. You could you look at the universe if considering that this uh, God must created the whole thing. The principal focus of the whole thing is us. It just doesn't make sense. He's made two hundred uh, billion galaxies and seventy trillion planets. He's made um, even if every single um, planet that is hospi- hospitable in every if every star in the whole universe has a hospitable planet. That's the equivalent of life being uh, uh, life being one molecule in six million Olympic-sized swimming pools. It does not appear that this thing was designed with us in mind. You know, why did we have uh, something like sixty or seventy million years of dinosaurs living on Earth? Why did God create the thing so big? Why is it over such a long, long time frame? Why did He wait nine billion years before Earth even came about? And um, why did it take another four and a half billion years for humans to come about? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't, you know, I guess. And the question I was going to ask is, do you believe in um, the apocalypse, uh, the end of time? And do you think that that means that God is really going to arbitrarily one day suddenly destroy 200 billion galaxies and 70 trillion planets? Hmm. So, so your question is the one about the apocalypse, and oh man, there's so much to to, to address there. Okay, um, so I think that when we think about the sense in which human beings have a sort of special relationship to God, I don't think 
it's tremendously informative just to look at the sheer numbers of things that they are. For instance, you know, like just in general, you know, the point of a sphere is also like, you know, it's least, uh, you know, it's, it's got the least matter in the whole thing. It's, it's the point, right, of the sphere. So uh, human beings ha have a special relationship with God, not, invert not because he loves everything, you know, he doesn't love anything else, right? That's not what I think Christianity says at all. God loves the whole of creation. But that human beings have particular special conditions of flourishing right we are the we are the we are the things that seek out the rational first causes of things we are the things which benefit from knowing and loving god our creator but if we're the kinds of things which you know specially benefit from knowing and loving god our creator then you know certain things about human destiny um sort of are more plausible right if knowing and loving our creator is our end then the achievement of that end, given what God is, is something that would take eternity, is something that would involve, you know, uh, an unending kind of endeavor. Um, yeah. But, but again, we don't have eternity. We've got yeah, uh, exactly. uh, roughly 100 years at best. To... Human existence itself, uniquely amongst all created reality, is kind of a paradox. If human beings don't, aren't able to find their completion in God, or if the completion in God is impossible, then human existence you know it's nonsensical but right you know it must be possible and if it must be possible then we should look forward to some kind of special intervention from god which makes it possible to know him forever yeah your your, your argument is basically it must be possible because we wish it to be possible but it, it it's it's definitely not a must is possible and again when when I made that statement, you went back to arguing about the nature of the world as it is in talking about humans because we have a unique role because of our intelligence and our, our uh, being able to, you know, we were given the lordship over all of the other animals apparently. Um, but doesn't it bother you that um, we have other human species, particularly Neanderthals, 99.7% genetically the same as mm -hmm. us, who clearly were intelligent as us, and as a hypothetical example, like you might not accept the science on that, but if there was a hypothetical example, there might be, there might be, or might have been, a more intelligent uh, species than humans. There might be a more deserving. Does that mean that we then get relegated? Um, no, I don't think so. So, I mean, as you said, right, our classification of human beings in, into species is some is kind of like. Um, relative to the interests of evolutionary biology, right? My, my, my classification, however, what makes you sort of have a unique destiny in God is that you are the kind of being for whom knowing the first cause is something beneficial. And if, you know, if Neanderthals were like that, then, hey, welcome to the human club, right? If aliens know like that. Now, a funny thing, like the medieval church used to contemplate the existence of dog-headed men, you know, and whether they would be sons of Adam as well. And I think their answer was affirmative, right? As long as you're the kind of rational animal which wants to know God, then you too have a stake in Christianity or something like it being true. Uh, so, and I'd like to clarify also that my argument wasn't that if we, just because we really want God to, to give us a special destiny, that therefore we do have a special destiny. I'm saying that since human beings exist and human, part of human existence is to have these conditions of flourishing, the only way that that could be possible is if God also makes it possible, right? So given human nature, uh, the human destiny is possible and the human destiny if it's sort of union with god uh, must involve an eternal existence so i think that um yes because of human nature not because of the way we want it 
uh, it is plausible that uh, sort of eternity with God is our end. Yeah. Okay. So my objection to that was the must. So you're saying it must involve an eternal uh, relationship with God. However, it doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, the teaching of religions is, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but Mm -hmm. it's not that all the other animals get an eternal communion with God. It's not that the other human species that went extinct before, you know, the revelation of Jesus and all of that. It's that humans have a very unique uh, relationship to God, isn't it? Well, what you mean by human, like, again, comes into it, right? Like, the ancients weren't using uh, modern biological taxonomies, homo sapiens sapiens. What they mean, you know, is something like what Aristotle means. He means the rational animal, right? And, uh, you know, if there are other rational animals, then, you know, they're just funny-shaped humans at the end of the day, right? As far as sort of knowing God and benefiting from knowing him is concerned. So I'm not super concerned about all these other lineages or whatever. I'm fine with where the science leads, like my anthropology is secure. I just have to sort of shift categories a bit when I'm thinking theologically and when I'm thinking evolutionarily. Yeah, so, but are there other animals are rational as well? Well, I don't, I don't like know. Like where, where are you going to draw the line because well, the line is indivisible? I think where they and so if you say you don't have a problem with the other human lineages, yeah, I agree with your logic there. You don't necessarily need to, but you've got to draw the line somewhere or else you, you're calling everything that can reason you, down to bees... Well, I don't think bees reason. I don't think they have abstract capability. I don't think that they reason towards the first cause. That's right. But where, where do you draw the line? Well, uh, I mean, b- birds birds dance uh, around around something in a ritual manner if they think they're going to get a particular solution. No, that's but that's not that's not rational. That's not rational. That's not knowing the abstract principles of causation. That's just you know, if I do such, I will get such. You know, it's yeah. It's, but where do you draw the line? It's particular know-how, not abstract thinking. So I think that. A good indicator of abstract thinking is sort of syntactic language, right? If something has syntactic language, if it can talk, yeah. and rule, rule its society by laws and know the first cause of the universe the way we do, yeah, sure. Like, welcome to the club. You know, I don't yeah, think... So we, don't, we, don't, we don't know the first cause of the universe. Well, I think we do, so... <laughs> okay, can, can I interrupt with just okay. a, a question of my <laughs> own? So uh, as, yeah. we, as we look to wind this up over the next few minutes, so the question has been does the Abrahamic God exist? Mm -hmm. And my question now is, does it matter whether we know or not? Um, According to the Protestant tradition, so I I was brought up a Catholic, and Mm -hmm. I was talking to you earlier, Matthew, that um, the sort of instruction I got was add up your good deeds and your bad deeds Mm -hmm. and take away what you've been absolved of through confession and how clean is your soul at the time of your death, and and that will get you into heaven. And under the Protestant tradition, they're more concerned with f- your faith in God. Do you believe in God as as a means of of entering the gates of heaven as part of it? So, um, so there's a school of thought. You know, does the Abrahamic God exist? Uh, there's a school of thought that says it's important that you know He exists, or you have faith that He exists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, from your philosophical first 10 minutes, draw a conclusion that this God needs to know that you believe him in, in order to confer um, benefits? Um, h- how do you arrive at that or, or do you not arrive at it? Um, and what about all the people who have been 
have lived and died and never been exposed to the notion of God? Um, sure. what, what happens to them? As usual, that's a very good question. Um, so I think, so at the risk of, so everything I say from this point on is at the risk of being a heretic, right? I'm not, a, I'm not, uh, I don't have my pastor here. I'm not sure about the theological rights. Anyway. You're, you're welcome in this company. You're in so, safe hands. <laughs> Cross over to the dark side, Matthew. <laughs> so I think that it does matter, right? That, that you know that God exists. Thank now, you. I don't think, I agree with that in precisely the terms that you said that I don't think God needs to know that. I mean, he knows already, right. Whether we do or not. Um, the point is, well, given that God, ex- the God of the kind that I said exists, exists, um, you know, what, what's, what, how, how then do is, do we relate to him? Right. Uh, for Aristotle, for instance, he considered once he, once he derived the existence of the one God who moves everything else, the unmoved mover, he says, Oh, well, our supreme end is obviously to, pursue our mode our distinctive mode of existence and to pursue our distinctive mode of existence is to pursue it in relation with him so in that sense god is the supreme end which he must uh you know unite himself with in order to be most fully human but there's a paradox right god as sort of we've established is really far away from us he's necessary he's eternal he's so far beyond our condition that even if we can describe him with philosophy we can't really get to know him there's no uh, sort of, and you know, and there's, and he's so distant that you know, only the most, only the nerdiest of human beings, you know, if they're if they're sort of motivated by philosophical arguments, would try to get to know. Him. Um, but I think that, in absence of knowing God, however, in absence of an eternal end which is worth pursuing forever, um, you know, we human beings just don't get the benefit of that end we are left to our own finitude and in our own finitude we die and are alienated from god and our alienation just continues forever right and that's if you can avoid it at all like it's worth avoiding so if we human beings want to benefit from knowing and loving god we've got to well know and love god right our souls have to be oriented to him and we have to receive his assistance in becoming united so bad luck for the human beings who grew up on a deserted island and were never exposed to the abrahamic um, god they just yeah, I mean, the, is that wrong just so, so bro- broadly speaking human beings as finite beings have no means within their own power of attaining the infinite good right it's just not even reasonable to think that we should receive the infinite good for fi- for the finite goods that we accomplish um so yes yeah, so in general people who don't know and don't have their souls oriented towards god um you know don't benefit from you know, sort of knowing and loving God. Now, that doesn't mean I think that people on deserted islands are up the creek without a paddle. I think there's all kinds of, you know, it's consistent with the Bible who says that all, you know, all nations are represented in heaven, that God has some sort of secret back way, you know, that by which he, um, by which he connects people to the sacrifice of his son, which gets them into heaven. But, you know, that's not something that you can tell just from looking at them, I guess. So it's more of a, something that you have to so, sort of hope that God is just and that he will do. I, so really yeah. for those communities, you'd, you would say, I just don't know. Yeah, I, I just don't know. I mean, it might be. It's not utterly impossible that God would find some way of uniting those that he wants to know him to him. Um, but I think the only sure way to know is to actually, well, to know that to, to benefit from knowing and loving God is actually to know and love God. So in that sense, I think that to, yeah, to receive eternal life, which is just the act of knowing God, as it is realized in human existence, yeah, you have to know and love it. 
Well, gentlemen, I'm ready to wrap this up unless you've got something really pressing that you wanted to get off your chest to explain something or, or not. But are you both good to leave it at that point, Hugh, or final words? Or, or Well, we, actually, we've got why closing don't we, why don't, Sorry. Why don't we just, yeah, we do, a, do a bit of a final yeah, statement yeah, each. Yeah, final statement then. each. So I think... Um, well, we were saying at the beginning that Matthew was going to give a final statement first. So, yes, you happy fine. with that, Matthew? Do you have any, just any final statement you want to make? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a final statement. Um, so, uh, I think a final statement should probably sum up where we've been, right? So, I set out the cosmological argument, which um, tries to show that from sort of dependent things, and we know that things are dependent because they don't exist on their own, they always exist in relation to other things. Uh, there is an independent being who turns out to be one, omnipotent, omniscient, all-loving, right? This is, and he's also a god who does, isn't just present at the beginning of time, he's also the being who sustains everything in existence from moment to moment. Now, a lot of Hugh's objections to this argument have been aimed at a god who is not quite the one I'm arguing, right? He's arguing against a deistic god, he's arguing against a god who is disproved by evolution, but because the god I've argued is the kind who upholds all of nature, including the evolutionary process, I think by and large, uh, the kind of god that I'm arguing for has kind of sidestepped his most key objections. I think that the very important topics that we've covered is, well, why does it matter, right? Why does particular religions matter in light of this god of the philosophers that I start off with? Uh, I think particular religions matter because they tell you how to relate to God and what God must be like if you are to relate to him. Right? And I think that in this respect, Christianity uh, is uh, extremely important because it tells us that God, because it is consistently with the sort of God's love of human beings as human, it teases out the implications of what it is for human beings to have a destiny that involves knowing and loving God. And I think such a destiny must involve God sort of um, supernaturally, uh, beyond, you know, acting from beyond the limits of human power, acting to unite human beings to himself. And I think that's the key message of Christianity, that he supernaturally intervenes so as to, you know, by grace, as the technical term goes, you know, to make himself available to you in the person of the incarnate human being who combines humanity and divinity. And I think that, yeah, for this reason, um, yeah, the philosophical God uh, primes us to accept I think something like Christianity uh, being true. Um, yeah, and I think that's all I'd say on that. Thanks, Matthew. Hugh, closing remarks. Okay. Well, thank you to Matthew. I think you've done a pretty good effort at um, supporting the cosmological argument tonight. Um, we've made, uh, in what I've talked about, I've made various arguments against the existence of God. Um, the ground of existence can have many other solutions besides God. Of course, that is such a huge field that we couldn't really cover that fully in this debate, but I don't think it's been shown that um, any of those other solutions, such as an eternal universe or a big bang and a big crunch, uh, could not have happened. Certainly they could have happened, and so many scientists think that they could. Um, Matthew kindly agreed with the burden of proof on the claim that uh, God exists, uh, therefore the default position in the absence of evidence or argument, sufficient evidence or argument is that God does not exist. Um, I argued there was insufficient evidence to justify belief in God. The arguments that, that we heard pointing to evidence tended to be pointing to the cosmological argument and also that perhaps the evidence was the existence of all the contingent things within the universe. However, 
that argument still relies on the cosmological argument's assumption that all the contingent things together require something non-contingent to create them, which which doesn't follow. Uh, We argue that since by definition God sits outside space and time, so we can't really have too much evidence of him, there are many, many other gods. I think Matt answered that one quite well by saying that a number of the other gods are probably the same God really, but we just have different words for explaining them. I think that was quite a good return argument. However, not sure it gets us there with some of the more um, the uh, Hindu gods and some of the more out there religions such as Scientology, etc. Um, there are no effects of God. I don't think we could. We really got an argument against that. The problem of evil we had a good discussion about, um, and I don't think we quite get the explanation as to why God can't make us all good or good enough with free will given he's omnipotent. And particularly the God that um, um, Matthew said that we were arguing against, arguing about a different God, I think we would have to agree. I'd have to agree with that. It was more the God of the philosophers from um, Matthew's side and we didn't really uh, see in the cosmological argument anything that supports the Abrahamic God who created humans as the pinnacle of his creation and that everything has to be uh, designed around humans, particularly considering the argument um, about human evolution where you have very similar other human species that went extinct and where do you draw a line between the rational animal, as Matthew says, and other rational animals such as, say, bonobos who can make decisions, who can communicate and have been shown to communicate with humans uh, using um, different devices. So I guess that's where the difficult things are. The cosmological argument, we had a few defeaters of that, given that causation is can't really be shown to happen outside of existence beyond space-time. We don't know what happens. The answer to, to that is really that we just don't know. And I guess... Uh, a final point. Uh, one of the problems I have with the whole idea of Christianity uh, and the Abrahamic religions is the idea of the immortal soul and how it conflicts with how our understa- and understanding of medicine and the human body and biology has changed over the years, like a 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. We certainly didn't understand that our mind was a product totally of our brain. We, we now know that the neurons fire and our brain works. When a certain part of the brain doesn't work, uh, then we behave differently. And problems and uh, diseases of the brain can be ascribed to different aspects of the brain. And so our consciousness uh, medicine uh, understands that it certainly looks like that it's, it's completely caused by the brain. And how do we then understand that in the absence of our body we have an immortal soul which can somehow think on its own and then how do we think about a creator that sits outside space and time that is just a mind without a physical uh, instance instant what well, it's not instantiated by any sort of physical thing our only understanding of a mind is the human mind which is created out of matter so i guess the problem i have is the soul and then the soul being somehow magically inserted into humans um in at some point in time which no one can really identify which now the catholic church says or oh, it must have happened at some arbitrary point in time and that's when humans that's when humans became the special creation of um of god not how the bible posits it 
when those uh, stories were written thousands of years ago, that it happened when humans were created out of dust by God. So the uh, the original story is now a uh, an allegorical tale. So all right, Hugh. that's my summary of where we are. Thanks, Hugh. That's a good wrap up of of what we experienced. Um, <laughs> thanks, guys, for the debate. I really appreciate it. It's been good and enjoyable and deep and. Um, and uh, I think it's worked out quite well. So, dear listener, if this is the first time you've stumbled upon uh, this fair podcast, uh, go to a website called The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove and you'll find um, a back catalogue. This is episode 248, so there's a lot of them back there that you can look at. If you liked this topic, you might want to look at episode 236 where we did a Bible study for atheists where we were looking at... Uh, the origins of the Gospels, and um, so that one might be of interest to you. And there's a very old one where I spoke with uh, Venerable Alex about Buddhism. If you're into that sort of uh, this topic, you'd, you'd probably enjoy that one. So, um, uh, any sort of uh, theist or Christian out there who feels that Matthew hasn't done a good job, and if only you'd been on the show and you could have really socked it to Hugh. Uh, there's an open invitation uh, to to come on and um, discuss the Christian uh, or religious side of an argument. Um, John Dixon, if you're out there, you're very welcome. Um, <laughs> anybody who wants to sort of argue uh, for the side that we would traditionally not be um, sort of in favour of in this podcast, get in touch. Um, more than happy to have another debate. Um, particularly keen with somebody to talk about uh, secularism and uh, how we're losing it in Australia and whether... Uh, Church and religious groups uh, deserve uh, lots of the privileges that they currently enjoy. That might be a topic we could do down the track. And um, so, anyway, Matthew, you're a champion for coming on to a podcast full of atheists and non believers <laughs> and giving you a bit. So, I genuinely appreciate your courage and your time, and, and thank you for, for being on. I would recommend if there's any Christians listening that you guys take a whack. Like, we all need to improve our skills, guys. Very good, yep. And thank you, Hugh, uh, once again. Um, uh, no doubt you'll be on again at some stage in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Trevor, and thank you, Matthew. That was yep. good. All right, dear listener, have a look at the website, see what we get up to. Um, not sure what we're doing next week, probably our normal panel discussion. Um, uh, hope you can join us then. Okay, so bye for now. Please, let us pray. Iron Fist, who art in Brisbane? Trevor be thy name, with velvet glove and twelfth man, podcast be thy game. Give us this day our weekly podcast, to expose those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into superstition, but deliver us from bullshit. For thine is the podcast, for the politics and the ethics, for the beer and the banter. Amen. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is 
you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.